0: This is a download of Chicago Audio Works, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. For more information, go to the website www.press.uchicago.edu.
1: Hello and welcome to Chicago Audio Works, the podcast from the University of Chicago Press. My name is Gordon Bufang, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Leonard J. Davis about his new book, Obsession, A History. Leonard J. Davis is professor in the Departments of English, Disability and Human Development and Medical Education at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He's the author of The Disability Studies Reader, My Sense of Silence, Memoirs of a Childhood with Deafness and Enforcing Normalcy, Disability, Deafness, and the Body, among other books. Leonard Davis, thank you for talking to the press today.
0: That's my pleasure.
1: Let's start with this. Uh, Why write this book?
0: Well, I wrote this book because I have several different um, themes going through my life, and one of them is an interest in literary history. So, Part of the book was just to answer a question that I asked myself one day when I was uh, running, which was, what's the difference between 18th century characters in novels and 19th century? And it seemed to me suddenly that the obvious answer was that sort of by the middle of the 19th century, characters became obsessed in novels. And all you have to do is think about writers like Edgar Allan Poe or Dostoevsky or Zola. You have characters who are driven, who are driven crazy by ideas and by what they do. And, and if you look in earlier novels, they tend to, Jane Austen novels, there are certain mild ideas that drive people, but it's more about society and people uh, interacting. And then it suddenly seemed to me that the imp- interesting thing would be to find out about, well, when did people start getting obsessed and what sort of, um, what sort of interest did society have in obsession in the first place? So that really led me to write the book and it led me to sort of go deep into the history of something that I began to realize is looked at rather superficially in our culture.
1: It's apparent, um, certainly in your work, in, in tracking that sort of remarkable uh, remarkable piece of the way in which uh, obsession evolves uh, in, in literature. There is though uh, a question for me also, is there uh, a, a more personal dimension
0: I mean, if you're asking me, am I obsessive? (laughs) The answer would be probably as much as a lot of other people. Um, I think as a child, I certainly had obsessive things that I did. I had certain rituals I had to do before I went to bed and um, certain things I had to do when I was walking along the street. But those sort of have faded away, and I would say that if anything, that... Um, my obsessions now really are the ideas that I work on and the books that I write. So I think I've channeled it to fairly successful uses. But I think one of the points of the book is that we tend to um, make a fairly strong firewall between obsessions which we consider beneficial and desirable and, and, and in fact our culture really is in a culture that worships obsession in some ways. You know, you're not, um, you're not a, a good enough athlete or artist or lover, if you aren't obsessed. And um, at the same time, we draw this really strong firewall and, and, cre- and have a, a realm of pathology in which people who are obsessed are considered diseased. So, so in my own life, I think I've fairly successfully um, navigated or, or gotten across that firewall. And part of the purpose of the book is to sort of question that wall that we set up.
1: So, where would, uh, where in your mind would be the distinction between, uh, uh, to some degree, unhealthy obsession uh, and socially productive or useful obsession?
0: Well, the, the interesting point about that is that you know the dsm four tr which is the diagnostic manual for psycho, psychotherapy. Um, basically tells you that they, it, it, this is a. And what's interesting to me about that is that there's a committee that basically tells you what's too much. Whether you agree with what the committee says or not, I think is a kind of interesting question. But for them, it has to do with um, whether it takes up a certain number of hours per day. I think they say three. Um, whether it causes you suffering and anguish, um, and the, and and those things on the surface seem to be fairly. Um, uh, diagnosable and measurable, but I think one of the points of my book is that these things are so heavily dependent on culture and society and identity that um, they're not as clear as it seems. So I, I personally am not a big fan of saying I have the answer to what becomes pathological or transgressive, but I think what's, what is interesting, I mean, the the, the definite um point of reference that people go for therapy and for help is when it becomes um, linked to anguish.
1: It's clear from your book that your definition of, obs- of obsession um, is much broader than, than, the, uh, than the medical definition. Um, wh- what are the things you would add in? Or what are the ways, I guess, in which you would characterize uh, the obsession you're talking about?
0: Um, well, I'm talking about several different obsessions, so maybe I should be clear about which ones I'm talking about. I mean, on the on the most general level, I mean, the definition of obsession is either thinking or doing one thing too much. And you know, obviously, when you say thinking or doing one thing too much, the too much is really the key in that. Um, who you know, sort of who gets to determine that, and who gets to say that the too much part is actually something that can lead to pain and anguish. But just to go back to that, I mean, I think that that you know at a certain point our society switched from one where people did a lot of different things and didn't do them necessarily too much to a specialization and that really happens kind of at the end of the 18th century when universities begin to encourage a certain kind of specialization when professions rise particularly the profession of psychiatry which i think um... you know in some ways got very very focused on obsession because it wasn't entirely different from what it itself valued as a cultural or a professional goal um, and it 's sort of part of my argument that the nexus between the obsessed person and the obsessed observer, in this case the psychiatrist or neurologist, um, created a kind of a special category that 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 of uh, uh, specialization and that that notion of specialization really flourished in the society at that point, so there was a kind of uh, complicated interaction between people observing obsession, people wanting to be obsessed so um, basically, with special in terms of a uh, society that's getting increasingly specialized, there's this sort of value put on doing one thing too much. I mean, if you think, for example, of what a scientist does, and this is the beginning of the rise of the sciences, a scientist basically does the same experiment over and over and over again to get a some kind of a, uh, a, a notion of what the truth is of the experiment. That kind of activity was actually a very unusual activity in the past. And uh, as society began to become more dependent, I think, on people becoming more and more specialized, doing one thing too much, or thinking about one thing too much, um, that suddenly became a kind of metaphor for what it means to be modern. And so the good side of that is that you can come up with nuclear physics or you can invent the atomic bomb by thinking about one thing too much. But the bad side of that is also that you can drive yourself crazy um, by Thinking a certain phrase over and over again, or being unable to do a certain activity without repeating it. So, if we think of these things on a continuum, it, it, I think it's more helpful, especially for the people who so-called who, people who have OCD, because they can see that what they have is part of a larger cultural phenomenon, and not simply this kind of weird, uh, eccentric disease that they have and have to get rid of.
1: So, in some sense, then the the work of the book is to uh, end a certain kind of personal isolation. Um, in the experience of the suffering of OCD or things of the like,
0: I, that is a good way to put it. I think it's also to give people a, a notion that their di- that disease and in particularly their disease has a history and a social cultural importance. Um, you know, because I think that too often, uh, you know, too often with um, mental disorders, uh, there's a sense that the person has this thing on their own, that they are some kind of eccentric um, or pathological oddity and the idea that you're part of a sort of great historical cultural sweep i think is a significant thing and a different way of thinking about mental disorders
1: your book talks uh, a little bit about the origin origins of the term uh, obsession Um, perhaps you can talk about that uh...
0: sure Um, obsession originally begins as a term related to demonic possession and the difference between being possessed and being obsessed is the difference between um, uh when you're possessed the devil is speaking through you and you're totally lost your identity you don't know that, that that you're being that you're possessed there's no you to know that you're being possessed but when you're obsessed it actually comes from the term a uh, military term when a when a city is being uh, surrounded uh it, and the citadel is uh still held by the, the citizens that's called a, obsession and then once the citadel is broken down and the armies come in that's called possession so the analogy is that your your soul is like a city and that um, when the devil uh, hasn't fully taken it, surrounded you, you're obsessed. And therefore, what that means specifically is that you're aware that you, the devil is in you. And by extension, when people talk about obsession now, they, t- they, ha- they talk about a disease of rationality, that you're aware of what you're doing. You're not completely taken in. You're not psychotic. You're not schizophrenic. You're aware of what you're doing. You're aware that you don't want to be doing it, thinking or doing things. But at the same time, you're powerless to stop. And so what's important about that is that it's a a disease of modernity in a way, because it is a disease of being rational. It's a kind of of psychiatric disorder in which, um, uh, like being neurotic, you can be aware of it, but you may not be able to stop it. And that's very different from the older versions of mental illness, which were totally encompassing. When you were crazy, you were just completely crazy. Uh, This is a, a kind of more modern, what I call the democratization of madness, when many, many more people are seen as a little bit mad, um, I think the Woody Allen idea of like everybody being neurotic is really part of that phenomenon, and so OCD is actually turns out now to be an incredibly common uh, mental disorder, and it's considered by the World Health Organization to be number four in the world. So um, it's really almost to have OCD is to be part of this culture uh, of being obsessed, but be, uh, be part of it in a very particular way.
1: We will be back with the second half of our conversation with Leonard Davis in a moment. Obsession, a History by Leonard J. Davis is published by the University of Chicago Press and is available at bookstores everywhere. News and information about the latest Chicago books can be found at www.press.uchicago.edu. The Press website has excerpts and other online features and, of course, a secure shopping cart for your orders. The Press is also the publisher of the Chicago Manual of Style, which can be found online at www.chicagomanualofstyle.org. We're talking with Leonard Davis, author of Obsession, A History. You uh, spoke a moment ago about uh, OCD being uh, the number four ranked i believe uh, uh, disease in the world what's the distribution of oCD where does it occur
0: well that's an interesting question because <clears throat> there's a larger issue in my book which is is to, to is to doubt to some degree the um, the statistics that are around OCD, if I could back up for a second, I mean, in the 1960s, OCD was considered an extremely rare disease, and it, 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 it occurred in about less than, way less than 1% of the population. Um, by the 1990s, it's considered the fourth major disease in the world. So the question is, how does, how does a psychiatric disorder, which isn't like a plague or AIDS or something, how does that be, go from being completely rare to completely popular? Um, and in the book, I talk about that in a, in a lot more detail, but the, it raises for me the question that there are certain elements of, of, of this particular disorder that are driven by market forces, by um, by cultural and social mechanisms that may have less to do with um, a person having the disease and more to do with the culture having a disease. So anyway, back to your question. the. Um, the argument or the claim is that it's worldwide, it's all over the world in every culture, rich or poor, and also it's been around forever, um, you know, from the beginning of time to now. So that's the argument that I'm actually trying to fight against, this sort of universal notion that it's every culture all been around all time. And to say, no, it's really specific to, art, to art, the development of a certain world culture and a certain kind of world mentality.
1: You were saying that it is uh, the consequence of... Um a narrower, more modern experience
0: yeah I mean I think that you know what what's interesting to me is I'm a I'm a you know basically someone who studies the cultural history and when I started looking at the claims in in medical journals um, for OCD you start reading right away that it's always been around and it's in every culture and then of course as a good scholar I start looking at the footnotes and it turns out that the footnote sources for these things are so so poorly substantiated that it wouldn't pass the claim of, of a, uh, in, a, in a freshman history class. I mean, there, there might be one paper that looked at uh, four countries around the world and that said, now we've looked at four countries, it must be worldwide, and another paper that mentions that you can find one or two examples from Lady Macbeth to uh, other characters in the past, and therefore it's always been around and when you start really questioning or looking at the the kinds of assumptions made you begin to see no it hasn't always been around and it hasn't it's not all over the world and it is um you know it's very much a product from my point of view of uh, uh of increased awareness based on a number of factors but one not small one is the development of certain drugs the SSRIs that were used to treat um um OCD and in the past there were almost no drugs that worked uh, to help uh, alleviate the symptoms. So, you know, you can really trace the rise of the disease and the interest in it to the development of, um, you know, the SSRIs, which are the Prozac like drugs that have come about fairly recently.
1: So, you're suggesting then that there are multiple incentives to uh, this notion of the expansion of OCD?
0: Exactly. I mean, it's a very, very complicated phenomenon. And I think it's true for a lot of other psychiatric disorders, too. But we, you know, uh, uh, and, and some people are beginning to write about that now. Um, uh, we're beginning to see more people writing about sort of complex phenomenon that goes into diagnosing uh, and creating, in some ways, diseases.
1: Well, you can't have a conversation about obsession without talking about Sigmund Freud, it seems. So uh, <laughs> what, is, uh, what role does Sigmund Freud play in?
0: Well, you know, I think he played an important role in the sense that the, I think the foundation of uh, psychoanalysis really started with hysteria, but very quickly uh, became uh, interested in obsessive uh, obsession. And you know, Freud uses the word. Uh, his most famous case, the face, uh, one of the most famous cases, the case of the Rat Man, uh, is really called the ca- a case of obsessional neurosis, and it's sort of based on the idea of obsession. It was perfect for Freud because it's a disease in which the people who have the obsession can talk about it. And, if, you know, psychoanalysis is about nothing but talking. You know, you're aware of it. You can talk about it. You're somewhat powerless to change things. And then he has a, his whole psychodynamic um, uh, explanations have to do with the idea of obsession being, uh, you know, uh, focusing on uh, or created by a certain kind of repression. Um, which you then can't pay attention to the repression, so you pay attention to the obsessive things that you're putting in place of the repression. So it's foundational for Freud.
1: It seems also in, in a conversation about Freud, uh, we end up talking about uh, sex and love or so com- some combination therein. Um, so what is uh, obsessive love?
0: Well, you know I think that on, I think in our culture, we tend to believe that if you're not an obsessive lover, then you're just you know your love is somehow deficient or um, not important and there's a whole kind of you know development from the nineteenth century on of this kind of fascination about what is a, trying to define what is obsessive love and what is obsessive sexuality and in every generation, no matter how progressive and no matter how regressive, that's like the, almost the central core question. What is obsessive and what is excessive? And, um, you know, even now where we tend to think of ourselves as living, I mean, we idealize the idea of obsessive love, and we have even perfumes called obsession that are supposed to make our love life uh, at least more, um, uh, more intense and dark. Uh, there's also this rise of an interest in sexual addiction, um, which in the book I talk about and part of the, this continuum of, of, um, of focusing on and obsessing about various things that humans do and trying to define what's obsessive. And, you know, so um, uh, you know, the, the rise of the idea of obsessive love and the idea of sexual addiction sort of go together, and they're, and they're part of this kind of new way of thinking about, well, there's nothing wrong with sex and everything is okay to, between two consenting adults. But there still has to be some limit. What's you know what's bad? And so obsessive love tends to you know the way they talk about it in self-help books tends to be um, either excessive, being excessively dependent on somebody, or too focused on, or focused on the wrong person, or focused on okay. the frequency with which uh, some people have sex. In other words, it, it, there's still an attempt to create this sort of uh, um, you know uh, calculus. Of what would be normal, and then what would be obsessive, even in a culture where we sort of don't like the idea of defining uh, sexuality in terms of some kind of rule that everyone has to follow.
1: A final question for you: uh, What was your last serious obsession?
0: Actually, I've just been writing about that this morning. Um, this election cycle, <laughs> <laughs> I have spent I can so many hours checking blogs, uh, you know, checking the latest latest information source. Uh, I, I can't, you know, the second I see a, a, po- a bump in the poll, I have to go back and check it with five other sources. Uh, so I would say that I have spent a good deal of my time checking uh, to see uh, every little pulse uh, bump and, and, and uh, you know, swerve in this uh, election cycle.
1: A lot of us are right there with you. <laughs> Thank you uh, very much for talking to the University of Chicago Press Podcast. Thank you very much for having me thanks for listening to this download from the University of Chicago Press. Additional episodes can be found on iTunes or any podcast aggregator. Your comments and questions are always welcome. The email address for the show is publicity at press.uchicago.edu. Copyright 2008, the University of Chicago. All rights reserved.